do your research um, and do it to a level. Um, and if you're going to bootstrap anything, you can bootstrap this. Or if you work at a place that has access to research databases like law firms or consulting firms, uh, where you can get this information for free, um, you need to develop your idea before you even bother, um, you know, stepping out um, uh, and talking to people about it. Um, research it to a level where you build, where you believe in the idea more than you believe in yourself. This is Devin Miller with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, a serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com. We're always here to help. Now, today we have another great guest on the podcast, Todd uh, Belleville. And uh, Todd grew up in Tampa, split his time, I guess, between Atlanta and Tampa, went to Berkeley, then to Vanderbilt, um, worked for Tiffany, the luxury uh, retail luxury brand for a period of time, did some things on the retail uh, store, met the COO in an elevator. Um, he was hired out of college um, as part of that, and uh, then uh, went on to um, do some, or from or CEO extended an offer to go back and get an MBA. Went back and got an MBA. Worked out uh, or worked up to director of resources. Left to pursue a new adventure. Um, became an equity research analyst at a big firm. Left and went to Atlanta to do a different job. Did strategy and uh, consulting for retails. Did a startup. Got venture back. Went back to Austin. Stayed there as a founder. Handed over the reins to another CEO. Uh, bought a laundromat. Uh, decided to update the industry with technology and started the business that he's doing now. So with that much as an introduction, and hopefully I got most of it right, welcome on the podcast, Todd. Yeah, thanks, Devin. I appreciate it. You did. Absolutely. Sounds a little more chaotic and adventurous than I uh, remember it. But but, uh, I know every time when I have someone else introduce me or you go through that, it's like, oh, that sounds a lot cooler than it really is. Yeah, yeah. You covered a lot of ground there. I guess I have. So well, let's but now I'm that I condensed a I condensed a much larger or longer journey into thirty or forty seconds. Let's unpack that a bit and kind of tell us how your journey got started, uh, splitting your time between Atlanta and Tampa as you were growing up. Yeah, well, I really moved to uh, Atlanta in ninety. It was right after I did the equity research job. I, I um, wasn't particularly good at mathematics growing up, but I'm good at finance. I'm not. You know, I think it's more logic based thinking, applied mathematics, predictive analytics, simulation, forecasting and planning, that sort of thing. So it helped me in business school um, and I had the operating background. So my ability to you know, assess companies from a financial productivity or performance standpoint and operating standpoint was sort of well-suited for this, this shop that hired me, for, the, for this investment firm that hired me on the buy side coming out now, of school before we got to in the investment firm, because there was, and we ch- chatted a bit before there was a, a bit of a backstory to that. Cause you went to, we're going to Berkeley and Vanderbilt and started out at the Tiffany company and met the COO in the elevator. So maybe fill us in a little bit on that backstory before you went and got the MBA. Oh yeah. No. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I did summer jobs, um, at Tiffany, um, mainly because I, they responded to an ad in the New York Times. Uh, it paid the, it paid well, and there were uh, lots of single college-aged ladies working there during the summer. Uh, and a good brand, um, and I was particularly good at 
I guess, retail sales, which was what the job was, seasonal sales help. They hire about a third of their workforce in, during this summer and the, and the, and the um, Christmas holiday. So did that and kind of gradually, I guess, impressed some people, met the right person who called me himself in, you know, in March before my graduation and, and offered me a job and I took it and um, you know, had a great uh, seven, eight year run there. Um, you know, getting the master's degree at NYU sort of opened my eyes to other possibilities uh, career-wise besides retail. retail. I, I like retailing. I would have been perfectly happy staying at, at Tiffany. It's a fantastic brand and company. But, uh, and many of my peers did. Um, but the senior leadership was too young. So I saw sort of a, a glass ceiling, so to speak, in terms of, I had no, I knew they weren't going anywhere because it wasn't a particularly hard job in terms of as being a senior executive would be. And it was at a very early stage of its growth uh, with a brand that has tremendous equity and tremendous potential to grow. So really, I wouldn't consider it a hard business to run as an operating CEO. Um, and uh, I saw kind of limited opportunities for someone post-masters uh, to, 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 to work there. So I began to look outside and uh, that dragged me into, you know, equity research where I spent most of my time looking at companies like Tiffany, you know, not just luxury goods retailers, but other retail and consumer products companies. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was a great journey there. The journey uh, with the buy side firm, which is everybody wants to be on the buy side when you're in equity research as opposed to writing reports the street um i ended up hating that you know i got i did the cfa level one did the cfa level two uh which is shocking because i was a history major at, at vanderbilt but i but again i didn't realize i had a finance mind until i got to, to business school um and uh so i got into the hardest parts of that and then just decided i, I didn't want the word analyst on my business card anywhere hmm. um ever <laughs> so so i quit that job um and uh, uh, moved to Atlanta uh, in 1998, uh, late 97, early 98, uh, and uh, spent was here until 2012 when uh, Silvercar started, and uh, the the oh. uh, the backer the backer of that company called Austin Ventures. One of the requirements of any portfolio company is that you move to Austin. Um, now, before you moved, before we get to your move to Austin, so you went to you said okay. I don't want to be analysts on anything on my job resume or my or my business card, so to speak, and wasn't something you enjoyed, you know, and, and so you're saying, okay, I need to do a change. So you went to Atlanta. Now you did, I think you did uh, or strategy and consulting, right? And you touched on that just a bit, but was that kind of, hey, I'll start out my own consulting firm or did you go and do it for someone else or kind of what did you do as you're getting back to Atlanta saying, okay, left the analyst job, what am I going to do? Uh, well, actually I went to Squaw Valley where I was a snowboard instructor for six months. Then, <laughs> because I, I definitely had no idea what I was going to do. Um, I would say at the time, blew through my savings because being a snowboard instructor doesn't pay much. Um, and then um, I uh, went to Atlanta once that, once the season was over, well, I went to Atlanta that summer um, and applied to a firm called Kurt Salmon Associates, which is now a division of Accenture called Kurt Salmon. They focus on retail and consumer product strategy work um, for the mm -hmm. most part. <clears throat> and so um, it was the only job I applied for. I, uh, I, I was lucky, got, got it right away. Uh, there was no period of unemployment, uh, uh, which was nice considering I was broke at the time um, <clears throat> when I moved there. 
I'm with my dog and my green BMW, aging green BMW. Um, so uh, yeah, no, that was a, another very good firm uh, where I spent almost eight years um, and brought, uh, helped them build a you know really quantitative, you know predictive practice to sort of things like assortment decisions and you know day to day retail, different things than I had done at Tiffany. Didn't do much store operations or those sorts of things. There's not much money in consulting doing that. I think there's there is money in consulting, um, helping people make less gut based decisions uh, and, and and helping them really understand how consumers really behave and how how uh, their assortments really behave. So that that was the, the the focus of my work there. It was really applied mathematics, statistics, you know, aimed at reducing the amount of space retailers need so they could be more productive per square per square foot. So my philosophy today is still the same, very, very square foot oriented, not sales per square foot, more margin per square foot. But, you know, I learned a lot there. Again, a very collegial firm. I had a really positive experience, was on the partnership track, um, and uh, but ultimately left uh, because uh, um, uh, the startup opportunity came along. Now, so and that was going to be the, the question I was going to ask is, you know, so you have this doing there, enjoy the work wasn't, you know, wasn't like, you know, the, as, as opposed to the analysts are saying, this is just not where I want my career to be, but nonetheless, you left. So how did that startup opportunity come along and what made you decide, okay, this is just an opportunity that I have to jump on there that I can't pass up, so to speak? Well, you know, it came out of uh, the idea was inspired by a complaint letter. I was Hertz chairman's circle or president's circle, whatever they called it then. I think they call it chairman's circle now. <clears throat> um, it's like all loyalty programs. They just simply add a level to devalue all the uh, other levels. I think that's what chairman's circle at Hertz is now. Although I think they've reset a lot. But uh, no, it started as a letter of complaint. To the, to the CEO. And what I learned at Tiffany, he, he responded to every letter of complaint he got. There weren't that many, but he did get, you know, thousands a year because, um, you know, obviously Tiffany's a big company and they have lots of customers. And, um, <clears throat> um, and our rental car company, you know, I, I know now I uh, would never have the time to respond to the complaint letters they must get uh, from, from customers, given they have a net promoter of 11 as an industry, um, most of them don't even measure it, but they spend billions on marketing, you know, every year. Um, I, but I, but I did realize from my time in consulting that there is a chance this person could respond, could respond um, with, you know, what would you do to solve it? Hmm. You know, in, in an advisory role, it's kind of, I don't know, I don't know what the right word is. It, it lacks credibility to complain with no offer of, you know, you might change, here's how you might consider changing this. You know, I'm not trying, I'm trying to offer constructive criticism. I'm obviously frustrated by parts of your business model. Um, you know, in, in rent, rental car, it was the type of vehicle I was getting. It was their emphasis, you know, like a purple PT cruiser. Uh, it's kind of embarrassing to show up at a client site in a purple PT cruiser. I, mean, I don't know that that might be something that sticks in everybody's mind that just might set you apart. You never know. You got to you got to use that as a marketing gimmick. No, I'm still yeah. looking for that person that like that car. Uh, I, I would have been that person. Baby, baby. The, All right. So, so now you're doing that a lot. Yeah. So. So, yeah, it started as a complaint letter. The answers that I began to write turned into sort of a 100 page 
you know, researched, you know, diet, you know, Saturday morning exercise where I was just thinking about this and what the solutions were and realizing that there may be a, an opportunity for a new type of rental car company. No, and I, I think that that makes sense. So now you, you've gone down to Austin, you've done that for a while. And then at some point, you know, you decided, okay, I need to, I, I want to step back I, or a different CEO will take over, kind of come in, take over, take the reins and, and, and run that. And then you wanted to, you know, go out and pursue buying a laundromat. So how did that transpire to where you're saying, oh, one, you know, I'm going to hire, hire someone else to be CEO and two, now I'm going to go buy a laundromat. Kind of how did that, or how did that take place? Well, it's interesting. I, think I would say it's 50%, you know, mindfulness on my part, 50% uh, history on VC behavior, um, you know, typically founders and maybe justifiably so in some cases, if you look at certain founders, you know, you know, really highly visible ones today, um, you know, coming to like WeWork's founder as an example, someone that holds on too long, uh, simply too, you know, in over their head in terms of managing a company of that scale mm. uh, uh, with the kinds of valuations, you know, VCs tend to get rid of the founder, right? Um, so, you know, my, my uh, self-selecting out is always better than getting rid of, um, even though it's still, I would say it still hurt a bit. I mean, because it was a hard decision, uh, you know, to ultimately come to, uh, but it wasn't one they disagreed with because I think they would have eventually, you know, both me and my co-founder at the time, a guy I brought in later to co-found and an ex-airline CEO, he left after me, but just six months and they had to push him out the door, you know? So I, I, I think uh, venture capital firms, you know, they bring in CEOs that are, that are not on, they're not founders. They've never founded anything. Their job is not to found, their job is to take things at a certain point mm-hmm. and scale, right? We all talk about how hard it is to bridge the gap from founding to scale. I think a lot of that has to do strictly with energy. You know, mm-hmm. the, the founding part is extremely hard. Uh, as you know, and many of your listeners know, scaling uh, is also hard, um, but not as hard. It it, it requires a different skill set, right? Yeah, and that's what big, I was going to say. I think <clears throat> it can be, depending on the industry, sometimes it's hard. You'll hit the peak and you can make it so that it's, you know, good company, but to take the next level can be hard. But, you know, I would also say it kind of has that different level of skill set and sometimes level of enjoyment. Sometimes I, I you know, and I'm probably the, to some degree this way is, while it's hard to get the business up and going, there's also a level of excitement of figuring it out, figuring out, you know, how to get it up and going, who's the market or who's the clients, how do you market to them, how do you reach them? And then you get to a bit of, you know, steady state of, okay, we've got the business going, it's up and running, we've got revenue, but, you know, do I, do I really have the desire to kind of now switch gears where it's not figuring it out, but it's now scaling it. And sometimes, you know, people are geared to do both sometimes and geared to both, but don't like both. And sometimes it's, you know, it's a different skill set. And so I think that, you know, there's definitely, uh, um, you know, an area where it's, it's something that a lot of times people head into. And it was always interesting, just as kind of a, a side note, but, you know, along the same lines as one of the books I love is um, it's by Mark Randolph, which is um, the original founder of Netflix. And it's called that will never work. And now whole long or story as to why his name that and won't get into that. But one of the things he found was, um, you know, you had, they got to a point where at the investors and the business and everything where he was kind of not pushed out, but he was 
had to take a step back because you're saying I'm not the person that can go kind of get the bigger seat or raising the bigger rounds and taking it to the next level. And that's where he had Hastings come in, which is kind of where everybody knows and about Netflix and everything else. And so he had to step back and really have the person that was positioned and had that skill set to take it to the next level. So I think that big or small, that happens with a lot of companies. So you're saying, okay, you reach that level, you know, different skill set, different desire, want to do something different, kind of all of those put together. Now, how did you decide to go buy a laundromat as the next step of your journey? Yeah, well, that was I was simply looking for something to do. You know, I'd stepped aside. I was back in Tampa. My house in Atlanta was still leased. Uh, I had no intentions of really staying in Tampa. It is my hometown, but I haven't lived there since I graduated from from, from high school. <clears throat> um, just a little too tropical for me most of the year. Um, so I, uh, uh, and the Falcons affiliation, but, 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 uh, uh nevertheless, I, uh, my mother was there, um, in her late seventies. My sister is a, is in a senior vice president of Raymond James. And my niece and nephew were there. So there were so they put the hard sell on me to stay. And so I began to look for things to, uh, which I was considering, but in the meantime, I just didn't want to sit around. I was doing sort of one-off advisory work and, you know, a variety of different things for people that were independents that I knew from the past. But um, I uh, decided to buy the laundromat. Just it was an industry where I saw value. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I drove around. They're really rental businesses, if you think of it. And I was coming out of car rental. Um, so I like rental businesses. They cash flow um, well above average. The typical businesses, like companies like United Rentals, which have been massive successes, um, Sunbelt Rentals, you know, I'm talking about non-automotive rental categories. Um, uh, automotive has had marginal success, but they're long-standing companies, you know, with very complex business models um, that lead to low profitability. These other companies don't suffer from that because there was no rental option available, you know, when mm-hmm. they, before they, they came, you had to buy the heavy equipment. Uh, or it was just inefficiently distributed. Laundromats, uh, mainly I saw it as a social impact. You know, I said, you know, these things are, um, they're really in bad shape everywhere you see them. They're not branded. So there's no, it says coin laundry or laundromat or in a dingy sign with a dingy window and you walk in them and they're dirty and dingy. Mm. Uh, and I'm like, this, this, this is, this is a industry that, we just want to improve itself. I mean, you know, and so begin to dive into that. But so I bought one, I bought it for $68,000. I think I overpaid by about $30,000. Cause I think it only grossed about $68,000. So yeah, I I bought one and said, we'll buy one. Um, I did it with my sister. So at the very least we'll remodel this. We'll do some good for this particular community in Tampa or maybe we buy eight to 10 and there's some way to roll them up under a brand and there's a, a brand consolidation, kind of like a local dry cleaner where people just know this name, they know this laundromat, they know it's going to be clean and safe, but still coin operated. When I originally bought it, I had no technology aspirations whatsoever, nor yeah. any desire to be a serial entrepreneur. I mean, like I told you before, there are very few terms that follow the word serial that are anything good. <clears throat> maybe philanthropist, maybe very entrepreneur, but, but maybe I just cereal the breakfast. That maybe just good. entrepreneur is probably good. It generally, it generally lends itself to the fact that you do multiple things, but 
the technology inspiration came later after my experience owning uh, the, the, the laundromat and operating it myself when it ran on quarters after I remodeled it. No, and I think, that, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I would agree. And I would say to some degree, the legal industry is probably different industry, completely different, but it, it is oftentimes very devoid of technology or and is ripe for an update, which is, is a lot of what we do, but it's kind of the same feel as, hey, you look at the laundromats and probably the laundromats that were there 50 years ago, other than maybe a little bit newer washing machine are basically the exact same model. They really haven't had any sort of an update, an adjustment, and yet it, there are plenty of areas where they could be improved. They just haven't been because it's a model that people just been following or whatever. And that's kind of what I feel like the legal model is a lot in the same way as, hey, we've been doing it as lawyers for hundreds of years now. And we've been, you know, this is a model that works and this is how we're going to do it. And it leaves it open to if somebody, if you don't figure out how to continue to improve and innovate, make it better, somebody else will. And so I think that definitely makes sense. And it's an area of, you know, those ones that oftentimes are ripe for disruption are the ones that are the ones that have been stagnant for a very long period of time. So sounds like it's been a, a fun journey to kind of figure out how to modernize and update and otherwise make the laundromat something more than just kind of the dingy thing where you go because you have to get your clothes washed and but you don't want to be there any longer than you have to because it's kind of that um, not as fun environment. So it sounds like an, an, a, a very fun uh, area to be. Yeah, it has been. It's uh, I would call it more of an intervention than a disruption, but uh, um, in, at least in the laundromats segment part of it. I would say the legal profession probably applies the, the same thing. It's a good analogy. My dad was a lawyer, hated it. Uh, most lawyers do. So why hasn't the legal industry changed in a way that makes some lawyers don't hate what they're doing? I think you, no, found, you, you seem to have found a unique way so you get more inspired by what you're what, what you're doing um, well that's that's so when i started most my lawyers will tell you at the end of their career they, they wish they'd never done it and i'm like um, it's it's just really kind of amazing to me really so i think you i think i think you're probably probably right in terms of uh, traditional behaviors amongst those that participate in the industry just don't change that much um, yeah but i think companies it's a, are small. it it's, leaves it in, as a much better opportunity so i think that you know finding those industries to do it. Cause you're right. I said, I, yeah. I started the firm. I'm like, you know, there are some things that I just don't like about the legal industry, or I, I don't know why we do them this way other than when you ask somebody, well, that's the way I'd always been done. And that's the way I'm comfortable with. And I said, why don't we step back and see, does it make sense? Are we doing it for a good reason? Or are we just doing it because that's what's comfortable? If it's a good reason, we'll continue to do it for that reason. If it's just because it's comfortable or it's easy, not a good enough motivation. Let's see what we can do. So I think that I like that. I think there's, you know, that the, Oh, laundromat industry has a lot of parallels, even though they're completely different services and different industries. So I think that's awesome. So the biggest parallel is there's a lot of just independent owners. You know, there are a lot of independent lawyers and there are a lot of independent, you know, most yeah, of the legal profession are independent lawyers. Would, like wouldn't have been one that most people would have put tagged together, but I could see a lot of things. Yeah, that, like know. my dad was, you know, but yep. uh, uh, the uh, never part of a firm. Um but uh, well, he was for like a year and was fired immediately. <laughs> so he just didn't have the right personality for it. But yeah, Fair laundromats, the uh, you know, they mainly own one or two max. I mean, yep. so yeah, it's it, it's similar. It's oddly similar <laughs> in some way. Exactly. Way. So well, now as we've kind of taken a bit, you know, started at the beginning of your journey, come up to the present day. Great time to transition to the two questions I always ask at the end of each episode. So we'll jump to those now. So the first question I always ask is. Along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? Worst business decision I ever made was to uh, listen to my, uh, well, 
that'll never work for right? a good example, but uh, was, was probably take the direction uh, or agree to, uh, they may see this, but I guess they probably already know the truth. <laughs> but I guess the, the, uh, the uh, I would say the worst business decision I made um, besides hiring a few people that didn't belong with us was, but if you talk about a strategic one, was to uh, emphasize the college business before the laundromat, you know, consolidation, which we're, um, we're working on now. Mm. Uh, it, it, it seems obvious uh, and my investors were excited about it. And we've obviously won a lot and we, our customers are great and we have a great service offering. And it's nothing to do with the customers or the users. Um, it has everything to do with getting the business. You, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's RFPs and procurement and sometimes government and, um, you know, it's a very bureaucratic process at most institutions. Some mm. not, some not at all. Like Van Vanderbilt and Monmouth, places like that, they can make their own decisions. Uh, you know, they, they don't need any permission from anybody. But, you know, MIT, Georgia Tech, Syracuse, they do. Um, and it takes 18 to 24 months probably to get one of these contracts. And the speed of that, you know, I, I said, and, and it's extremely competitive. I mean, it, we compete with people who are, are bigger than us. Um, they don't have the technology we have, right? Nor the value proposition we have because of it, uh, but they can make themselves look as if they do, right? Uh, and uh, some of them, like before we got the MIT deal, the current incumbent had the contract for 60 years. Mm. So uh, I think the worst position was maybe not pushing back on that harder and simply saying, why don't we go where the competition's not? Yeah, and, no, and I uh, think that- But there know, was a brick and mortar uh, consideration there. And, and it's, you know, college contracts are incredibly capital efficient. They move a lot of LG electronics machines. So I went and got LG as, a, as an equity partner. Um, so it's worked out really well. And I mean, and the customers have all been great. Again, it's just more for us as a company, I think we would have grown more quickly um, over the period while I was leading it um, by either doing it in a more balanced fashion or, um, um, you know, starting with the, with the laundromats, getting a crypt critical mass, then pushing into the, uh, to the uh, college aspect of things, as opposed to being reliant on sort of fast growth uh, in colleges. No, and I think that makes sense. You know, and it's one that you can, some of those, it's always, you look back and you're saying, oh, you know, if we could have done this, it would have made more sense. And, you know, hindsight's always 20-20 and it doesn't, you know, sometimes it's those things that you should have done or you, if you would have had better foresight, you would have done. And yet, you know, you have to make some of those or mistakes or those decisions to, to learn from as you then know how to better navigate it in the future. So I think that that's a, a great mistake to learn from. Yep. And then yep. before we get to the second question, just as a reminder to the audience, we are going to do the um, talk or do the bonus question where we talk a little bit about intellectual property. So just make sure to stay tuned for that if you want to hear us talk a little bit about uh, intellectual property. But before we get to the bonus question, we got to ask our normally or our last question, which is if you're talking to somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Uh, one piece of advice, I would say, um, you know, in order to be successful, with startups, I think, um, and, and part of this is uh, quality, you know, making the thing investable as opposed to just, and building your own, you know, getting your, your mindset ready to do it uh, is to do your research um, and do it to a level 
Um, and if you're going to bootstrap anything, you can bootstrap this. Or if you work at a place that has access to research databases like law firms or consulting firms, uh, where you can get this information for free, um, you need to develop your idea before you even bother, um, you know, stepping out um, uh, and talking to people about it. Um, research it to a level where you build, where you believe in the idea more than you believe in yourself. Mm. Um, and I know that's an interesting way of saying things. And it's sort of um, uh, your concept, your plan, or whatever stage it's at, you must <clears throat> not be losing sleep overnight that you've missed something, that it's not thoroughly researched. You understand the competitive dynamics. You understand um, all the things you're getting into and all things that you'd be bringing anyone else into. Because uh, as human beings, we wake up in the morning. Uh, sometimes we feel like crap. Sometimes we uh, come, uh, we, we wake up inspired and looking forward to the day. Some days we don't. Um, mm. You know, I don't know, sometimes for some people it's half and half for some people, but that's just the way we are. Uh, ideas and fundamentally sound business plans and uh, um, don't suffer from those same weaknesses. You know, if, you, yeah, if, you've and, done, if you've done that work and you check the box and you've built a foundation for your idea that uh, stands up on principle, uh, even it's, it's so fundamental, fundamentally strong that even if you have a bad pitching day or you're in a bad mood um, or you're simply not at your best, that it, the idea's strength um, and the work you put into it will carry uh, will carry you through it. Um, yeah, that's and, the best, and I like that's that. That's the best advice I can give to people. And if you can't do it, get help doing it. And I like that because I think that, you know, a lot of times is what I would say is you're convincing yourself that it's a worthwhile or business opportunity, because oftentimes I think is if you're an entrepreneur, you like startups, you like small businesses, or you at least you think you do, you get excited about an idea and you want to get going before you ever actually figure out, you know, is it a worthwhile idea? What is the marketplace? Can I, how, what am I going to make money? What kind of investment do I need? You know, do I need investment? How do I bootstrap this? And you kind of have to go through that checklist of ex or of convincing yourself that it's a worthwhile thing to pursue. And until you go through that exercise, it, it greatly diminishes the likelihood of success. So I think that's a great piece of advice. Well, before we get to the bonus question, if people do want to reach out to you, they want to be a customer, they want to be a client, they want to be an employee, they want to be an investor, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out to you, contact you, find out more? Uh, well, I've set up a website, it's toddbelville.com. You can go there and just uh, reach out to me directly there. Um, or you can email me at todd at washlava.com. Um, but, right. uh, the, web, the website's probably the easiest way and I, I'm easy to get hold of. Cool. Well, I definitely encourage people to reach out to you, contact you, find out more and appreciate you coming on the podcast. Now for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell, if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, we'd love to have you. We'd love to share your journey. Just go to inventiveguest.com and apply to be on the show. A couple more things, make sure to listen, make sure to subscribe, make sure to share. And uh, because we want to make sure everybody finds out about all these awesome journeys. And last but not least, if you ever need help with patents, trademarks, or anything else in the business, feel free to go to strategymeeting.com. Well, now as we've wrapped up the, what I would quote unquote, the normal part of the episode, we get to jump to the bonus question, which is always kind of a, a fun uh, shifting of gears where we get to talk about a topic that's uh, near and dear to my heart, which is intellectual property. So with that, I turn it over to you to ask, what is your uh, in top intellectual property question? Uh, I guess, um, are they worth it? You know, I think, um, you know, we spent, uh, I don't know, a lot of that six patents and 
to well, the EU and, and, and the US, one yeah. in the EU and five in the US. Um, I wonder how much they discourage, and I did, my, my strategy was to discourage other startups. Um, I knew the laundry manufacturers would try to knock me off, um, and they have unsuccessfully. Um, uh, and it is interesting because now Google Ventures is suing the, the biggest sort of white label provider of, um, you know, app-based laundry. Um, based yeah, no, I think, it, I think it's a fair question. I think, uh, you know, if I were to summarize it, Do they discourage other startups, I guess is my yeah. question. And I would say, I, I like how you phrase it even before that is, are they worth it? Because I would say, you know, for different businesses, there may be different motivations as to why you do it. So I would say the first step is to see whether it's worth it or not, is why you're going after it. Because to your point, one of the reasons why you do it is to discourage other businesses. Another reason you may do it is you wanting to get an asset that you can go and raise venture capital or angel investors off of. And they're saying, hey, a lot of what your business right now is, is an idea and it's a concept and maybe a prototype. You know, what's proprietary? How are you going to protect it? So it may be an asset that you're investing in. It may also be an asset that you're looking to say, hey, if we do a merger, we do an acquisition um, and, you know, something that we need to we want to show as proprietary is an asset of the business that increases the valuation. That's another one. So I think, the, you know, that first question is, is to and, and sometimes it, it doesn't make sense to the business. You're saying, hey, this is one where it's going to have so many knockoffs so much of the time and we just don't want to get into having to chase down everybody. You know, if you're the next Snuggie and everybody's just going to rip you off, then you're much better to put that money into marketing campaign, build a brand and uh, blitz a market as opposed to doing an intellectual property. So I think that the first step is to say whether or what, you know, is it worth it as to what are you going to do with it and how you might leverage it. You know, as far as if you're saying, can you enforce it? Well, yeah, you can always enforce them um, and, you know, you can successfully enforce them and you can stop others from coming in the marketplace. The question is, is, is it worth enforcing? In other words, hey, if what they're, if the knockoffs are eroding such a small portion of the marketplace that they are not going to have any real impact on your business and you're saying we're going to spend more on legal fees and attorneys than we are and what is going to erode in the marketplace probably doesn't make sense and you, you know, pursue it a different way. On the other hand, you have a business that's coming in and because they're copying your intellectual property and your model and your business, they take 40% of the market and it's a big, you know, that's a big chunk of the, your revenue, then it's worth it to, to have that in place and, and to be able to enforce and have that option. You can still decide, hey, we don't want to enforce it and it's not an option, but it gives you an ability to protect or control what you've innovated. And I know that that's it is situational specific and it's always different, but that would probably be a couple of guidelines I'd give is one, figure out why you'd want it, if you'd want it and what, how you would use it if you're going to use it. And then based on that, look to see, okay, now if that's, if that's where, how we're going to use it, what is our best options forward? So. Yeah, I think that, it actually did work. I will tell you, I mean, I have one example where I called the, we're a customer of theirs and they, they, they put on their marketing material. They had a reserve feature on our, on our app. You can reserve a, a machine before you go to a, a shared laundry space. Uh, they didn't have it. It was, you know, vaporware. I knew it was vaporware, but it was all over their their marketing booth at their this big convention. I called the CEO and I said, "You don't have this technology. I know you don't have it, and I want you to take. You know, you're not gonna, going to have it. Um, you know, it's the only part of our UX that I will protect. I'm not. In, I can't protect digital payments. You know, I can't protect." You know those sorts of things, but th that's the that's the one part of my software UX I will protect. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so, so, so sometimes you cannot, you cannot, and his answer was, "What do you mean? Where? Where?" <laughs> of course, he had no idea, 
you know, it was in the biggest manufacturer in the space. And it, and all of a sudden it just disappeared. I'm sure you read some of the riot act. Um, yeah. And I think that that's the, the point of, you know, sometimes you're also going into it. You're not sure where is your value. What is a valuable aspect of your business or what are you going to protect? You know, one of the ones that became valuable um, for Motorola was a very simple, almost a glue compound that they use with some of the microprocessors that everybody in the industry found out that they needed to use in order to do it. So it was one that was kind of an afterthought. They just filed a patent on it because they wanted to, or because it was still innovative and they were going to use it. And it wasn't one that they anticipated just being a huge asset to the business. And yet it turned to be a huge revenue maker and it was a valuable asset. So I think that it's one where it's also a bit different to always project which ones are going to be valuable so yeah it made no sense in automotive yeah so i'm like so, automotive forget it they'll just take your stuff in yeah. uh in, in in laundry it made sense yeah and with that we're we'll we'll go ahead and wrap up the podcast we could chat i'm sure for a long period of time go through war stories and have a great conversation but to, for the sake of the audience uh we'll go ahead and uh, wrap up and uh and definitely Appreciate coming on the podcast. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. And uh, definitely wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. And thanks, Debbie. You too.